Often, but now we want to turn to our scripture reading, and I want to ask you as a way of entering into our scripture this morning from the Gospel of Mark, this question. Who are suitable prospects? We talk about extending our community. Who are suitable prospects for the message of salvation and the call to discipleship? We might think that the answer would be those who are religious, religiously or spiritually inclined. But as we return to the Gospel of Mark today, the scene that unfolds us, that unfolds before us by the Sea of Galilee, cautions us not to limit our prospects. Jesus has already surprised us by calling a bunch of fishermen to be his followers, followers, uh, yeah, blue-collar tradesmen, rather than religious scholars or rabbinical students, were not the obvious or typical choice. But now, Jesus is really going to raise some eyebrows. As he approaches what amounts to a toll booth, Jesus will bring new meaning to the word unorthodox as he calls a man named Levi to be one of his disciples. As Gwen Hefley comes to read scripture this morning, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. As you see, it's on page 695 of your pew Bible. It's on. On. Um, once again, Jesus went out bes uh, beside the lake a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. They asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to, him, said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus probably encountered Levi at a booth on the major international road that went from Damascus through Capernaum to the Mediterranean coast and then south to Egypt. You've probably heard this before, but it bears repeating, maybe for some of us who aren't familiar, that tax collectors were Jews employed by Rome whose business it was to collect tolls and customs from the Roman Empire's occupied territories. That was their job description. But as a position, as a category, they were viewed as traitors to their own people. Tax collectors were also hated because they were pretty much considered government-sanctioned thieves. They often tacked surcharges and other fees to the regular tax rate in order to line their own pockets. Tax collectors were so despised that they could not serve as witnesses or judges in a dispute. They were expelled from the synagogues. And they were so despised that not only them, but their families were considered social outcasts. Tax collectors, in other words, were considered to be in a class by themselves, which is evidenced by the way you hear the teachers of the law phrase their question. Why does your master, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Not just sinners, tax collectors and sinners. The point being, no self-respecting or observant Jew would have anything to do with such people. And yet, 
As you heard Gwen read from the Gospel of Mark, here is Jesus offering one such person, what we would call a pariah, an invitation. Follow me. And so, Mark doesn't pull any punches, doesn't waste any time. Follow me. On the heels of follow me, we see Levi beginning to live by faith. Last week, we defined that faith of discipleship as belief put into action, and Levi models it for us. Levi begins to live by faith, putting his belief into action. Jesus has declared him forgiven, most likely in this invitation, has invited him, Levi, into his true identity as a child of God, as a part of the Lord's covenant promise. Levi has been challenged by Jesus to follow him into the new life of the kingdom, and here we see Levi take that first step of faith as he walks away from a lucrative and secure, albeit controversial, government job. This isn't like the fisherman who can go back. There's no going back for Levi. Levi leaves with no idea where following Jesus will lead next. But as you heard Gwen go on, as Mark continues, what comes next is compelling. It's instructive for all of us as disciples of Christ. Despite his hated profession, wouldn't you know it, Levi has friends. Friends, not surprisingly, who are tax collectors. And Levi decides to have them over for dinner. He throws an impromptu dinner party. Now, whether this was a farewell retirement celebration for Levi or a coming out party, Levi's life has been profoundly changed and the guest of honor is Jesus. Don't miss what's happening here, beloved especially in continuity with last week. Don't miss what's happening here. Much like the four friends we heard about last week, Levi's newfound faith leads him to bring his friends to Jesus. Or maybe it's better put this way. Levi's newfound faith leads him to bring Jesus to his friends. I asked you that question last week. Faith is belief that leads to action. Do we have enough faith to bring our friends to Christ? Levi has enough faith. It's just begun, and just with that little bit of faith, he brings Jesus to his friends. But we see, once again, we're, we're stepping into controversy because in accepting an invitation to dine with tax collectors at Levi's home, Jesus is seriously jeopardizing his approval ratings. It hasn't been that long where we heard all about the crowds and amazement. No one has ever done anything like this. No one has ever taught with such authority, but now Jesus is jeopardizing all of that. Amazing teaching and incredible miracles notwithstanding, hanging out with sinners threatens to undercut Jesus' perceived authority. Jesus is risking taking on the shame of those with whom he chooses to break bread. The scandal of all this comes to the forefront as the critics, in the midst of the crowds, they're always there, the critics question the company that Jesus keeps. It's worth noting Mark doesn't describe it, but he doesn't need to. From outside the house, they're not inside the house. There's no way they're inside the house. From outside the house, looking in at the scene before them, you can imagine it, looking in on what's going on inside. From outside the house, again, not to Jesus directly, but in an aside to his disciples, they scornfully ask. Luke puts it this way, they grumble. Remember grumbling? They grumble. Why does he, why does your teacher, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
You see, godly people, proper church folk, a presumed Messiah wasn't supposed to run in such circles. Indeed, in the eyes of a watching community, by sitting at table with them, Jesus was choosing to be one of them instead of one of us. Please hear that again. Jesus was choosing to be one of them instead of one of us. In answer to their protests, Jesus declares quite simply and yet profoundly, those who are well do not need a doctor. It is only the sick. And Jesus goes on to affirm that he has indeed not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This, the tension in this builds. What's their response? We don't know. What is the response of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, to what Jesus says? We don't know. We presume to know. If I were to ask you outside of the sermon, we would probably project what we think happens, but we don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. Jesus' words just hang there, awaiting a response. Jesus' words just hang there, awaiting our response. Which one are we? Which one are we this morning? The righteous or the sinners? Well, of course, we'd answer we're the sinners. Of course, that's why we're here. We would answer we're the sinners. But don't we tend as Christians to act like we're the righteous? I mean, don't we tend to be more like, don't we tend to have more in common with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law? Now, I might be raising some eyebrows, I might be beginning to offend, but we need to, we, we, we need to be cautious in how we hear this story. We need to be cautious with the stereotype, the ter- stereotypical view that we have about the Pharisees. You see, if we make the Pharisees, as we often do, we start this in Sunday school as children, and we continue on into adulthood, if we make the Pharisees the black-hatted bad guys, the straw men villains of this story, we'll miss the point that Jesus is making here. We tend to stereotype the Pharisees and teachers of the law as being hypocrites. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is they were not hypocritical as much as they were hypercritical. I mean, think about their context. Think about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They lived in a time of occupation. They lived in a time where their land was not their own. They lived in a world where God's last word to them had been one of exile for their people, on account of their disobedience. And many generations later, the oppression of Babylon had become the tyranny of Rome. They lived in a world where reverence and honor towards God had been lost. They lived at a time where moral purity was a declining virtue. They lived at an age where corruption was everywhere. And so the Pharisees The separated ones, that's what the name Pharisee means, the separated ones became a movement, biblically conservative lay people who sought to follow the Torah, God's word, who sincerely worked to reform the values of their community, who rigorously promoted discipline in order, in seeking to be pure, to be holy as the Lord their God is holy. These are the bad guys? These are the bad guys? 
I mean, if you really stop and think about it, the Pharisees were simply approaching the problem of sin from the preventative side. I mean, if sin is an infection, then for the Pharisees, quarantine is the answer because separation, isolating the infected, prevents the spread of the disease. And in some respects, we can see where they might draw that idea from out of Leviticus, which we just studied. And beloved, let's be honest. Don't we, aren't we as modern believers, isn't the average Christian community the same? Don't we tend to live and think the same way? Isn't that why becoming a Christian means you trade in all your worldly stuff for all the Christian versions? Oh, I don't read those books anymore. I read Christian literature. Oh, I don't listen to that kind of music anymore. I listen to Christian radio. Oh, no, 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 I don't watch those movies. I watch Christian movies. Our whole Christian subculture, and it's huge. You can go to any bookstore and there's a Christian section. You can go to Christian stores just to sell you all of the stuff that supports the idea that we've created a culture based on the belief that in the midst of the mess that's out there, the best way to deal with the problem of sin is prevention. Quarantine. Beloved, how many of us have distanced or isolated ourselves from non-believers since we came to Christ? How many of us really don't have any friends who are non-Christians? Can I tell you how many people within this community have said that to me? I don't really have any friends who aren't Christians. How many of us are not as close to the people in our family who don't share our faith? How many of us feel very distant, nothing we can talk about, can't relate to them because they don't share our faith? I mean, we don't, mean to, we don't mean to seem arrogant. We don't mean to come across as exclusive. It's just that we believe we need to protect ourselves. We need to separate ourselves from all the corruption in this world, from all those bad and dangerous influences, from the unrepentant, the willfully evil people who should know better and yet purposefully choose to do what's wrong. I mean, Matthew and his friends, Levi and his friends, these tax collectors, no one put a gun to their head. They knew what they were doing when they chose to align themselves with Rome, and they certainly knew what they were doing when they charged more every time that someone passed by one of their booths. Don't they get what they deserve? Beloved, we struggle to so closely identify with such people, with our fellow sinners, because the truth is we're afraid they might rub off on us. We're afraid that we might become associated with their guilt and shame. You want a great example of this in our own modern context? You want a great example of this kind of fear that we have, this latent fear rising to the surface? Try telling someone, someone you just meet for the first time, someone in Christian community, try telling someone you're an ex-con. Tell them he did time. Don't tell them what for, just tell them. And watch their facial expression shift. Notice how suddenly less comfortable that person becomes. A quarantine policy may, when it comes to sinners, a quarantine policy, it may do loads for us, might make our world cleaner, might make our our lives neat and tidy. It might make us feel better, safe and secure at night, maybe even successful, but it does little to help those who are in most need of the gospel. In truth, 
Separation and isolation only compound the effects of the disease, the sense of alienation and hopelessness, the feelings of self-hatred and apathy. We approach sin preventatively. We have a lot in common with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but hear the word of the Lord. We approach sin with them preventatively, but Jesus approaches sin creatively. Creatively. Jesus didn't just want to contain the problem of sin. He sought to attack the disease head on, to eradicate it, to provide a lasting cure. He looked to reclaim the contaminated, the weak, the sick, the lost, and to heal them once and for all. How did he do this? Not by quarantine. How did he do this? Not by preventative medicine. How did he do this? By loving people. By making contact with them. We've already seen some powerful examples of just the power of presence. By making contact with them, Jesus confronted the disease head on by crossing lines, by going to where those people are, by risking association with them and being willing to break bread with them. Beloved, Jesus didn't fear the contamination of sin. Instead, Jesus sought to contaminate the sick, to inoculate them with love, And eating with them, this picture that Mark gives us, eating with them was both a sign of the loving acceptance of God as well as the delivery method for the cure, the grace that deals with all sin. Through a shared meal, let's be clear about this, through a shared meal, something as simple as a shared meal, which we have the opportunity to engage in this afternoon, through nothing more than a shared meal, Jesus was not condoning a life plagued by sin. Jesus was expressing faith that these persons and their lives could be transformed by following him. That's why this sacrament is so meaningful. That's why this sacrament matters. Every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the picture of what we see here in the Gospel of Mark. That's why this table is sacred. That's why, beloved, and I might raise some more eyebrows right now, this table cannot be fenced off. If Jesus has called us as his disciples, and if we seek to follow Jesus, and that's why we're going through the Gospel of Mark, what does it mean to be a disciple, to follow Jesus? If he's called us and we seek to follow him, then we have to go where he is. We have to bring this table out there. We have to bring this table out there into the world. Jesus is not corrupted by sin. And beloved, if we are in Christ, neither are we. The very presence of Christ extends blessing that cancels out sin, the scriptures tell us. The perfect love of Christ casts out all fear. The sacrificial love of Jesus expressed from the cross and vindicated through the resurrection makes us more than conquerors. It makes us ambassadors of grace. Will we answer the call? Beloved, if we understand God's holiness, the Lord's grace is something to be preserved as only through ritual or doctrine. If we convince ourselves that associating with non-believers, heretics will pollute the faith and therefore jeopardize our walk, our standing with God, we will remain where we are. We will not share Jesus with anyone. We will not go and make disciples. But maybe the challenge for us, maybe, maybe it isn't fear. 
Maybe it isn't self-protection. Maybe the problem is we still don't understand our own need for a doctor, our own need for grace. I mean, if we're really honest, I mean, we're, we're kind of putting it all out this morning. If we're really honest, we say we're with the sinners. We say that. But if we're pressed over coffee, most of us probably think our sins aren't all that bad. I mean, yeah, sure, we lie. We lie now and then. We lust, maybe. We're greedy, okay, we gossip. But come on. Compared to those hardcore sinners, you know, the real criminals, those lawbreakers, we're pretty righteous, aren't we? We're pretty righteous, am I right? I mean, we still need Jesus, sure, but not like they do. I mean, come on. I mean, don't we all, let me ask you, don't we all have our version of a tax collector? People so wretched, in our opinion, that they're in a class by themselves. The Pharisees said, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Who's your and? We all have one. We all have someone who's so bad that they are in a class by themselves. Who's yours? Republicans? <laughs> Democrats? Muslims? Gays and lesbians? Drug addicts? Terrorists? Atheists? Why does Jesus eat with sinners and atheists? Or maybe it's a little bit deeper. Maybe your and is a family member who abandoned or abused you. Why would Jesus eat with sinners and him? Maybe it's a friend who betrayed you. Why would Jesus eat with sinners and her? Who are the ones out there? Who are the ones out there, in your opinion, who get what they deserve? Who would it be impossible, from your point of view, for Jesus to welcome home? Who could never be called to follow Jesus? In your mind right now, you cannot picture it. They could never be called to follow Jesus. They could never become a disciple. What, what if Jesus were, were among us today and we're still stinging from this? And what if Jesus called a Wall Street CEO or a hedge fund manager? Our version of government-sanctioned criminals, yes? What if Jesus called a Wall Street CEO or a hedge fund manager to be a disciple? Can you even imagine that? I mean, I just was reading an article the other day of the anger that's still there of how many of these hedge fund managers or Wall Street CEOs have been prosecuted. Zero. Imagine they're all there. Jesus is teaching and he sees one of them and Jesus goes up, comes up upon one of those fat cats from Bear Stearns or Merrill Lynch and instead of poking a finger in his chest, walked up to him and invited him to come follow me. What if you heard that Jesus was having dinner and, the, and was the special guest at a party being held by one of those guys who was living large while you lost your house. While your retirement savings were completely wiped out. Before you answer, keep in mind, that's exactly what most people back then would have thought about a tax collector. I mean, the Pharisees had stayed close to home. They were regularly, dutifully attentive to the Torah. They worked hard in their heavenly father's land, waiting for his expected arrival, their promised inheritance. They didn't sell out their father to go work for the Romans. They didn't cheat and steal from the mouths of their own people. 
And yet, these are the kind of children, these are the type of sons that Jesus welcomes into the kingdom? Are you seeing it yet? Beloved, this is the parable of the prodigal lived out in real time, in actual day-to-day life. And here are the Pharisees standing outside the door like the elder brother, even as Jesus is inviting them in, and they're chomping at the bit, asking repeatedly, is it fitting to throw parties for prodigals? And here we are, struggling to decide whether we're among the righteous or the sinners, failing to understand that apart from Christ, we can only be one, but never the other. Apart from Jesus, the scriptures are clear. No matter how we rate each other, no matter where we rank the sins of humanity, there is no one who is righteous and sins not. Not one, the scriptures declare. But if we keep company with Jesus, we can be both, the sinners and the righteous. Encountering Jesus causes us to see just how broken, just how lost, just how sinful we are, but it's only in following Jesus standing with him that we can discover that we can experience how he who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, other faiths, other religions are the result of humanity's search for God. And you'll notice in those other religions and in those other faiths, the emphasis on who's in And who's out? But the way of Christ presents God's search for humanity, for us. God's search for us, even the ones the world deems the most unworthy. Irredeemable is a word that doesn't exist with Jesus. Think about that. Irredeemable is a word that doesn't exist with Jesus. Beloved, if our God is greater, if God's grace is greater than our sin, if nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, then God's holiness, his grace, and his love need to be shared with everyone, not quarantined, not sanctioned and isolated and kept to ourselves. It's this simple. Here's the point. Where we think we stand with Jesus, where we think we stand with Jesus is ultimately revealed by whom we are willing to stand with. It is ultimately revealed by the company we keep. Tony Campolo, who I hope many of you know, preacher, storyteller, pastor, has a story that has always stayed with me that I want to share with you that speaks into this. He was traveling, as he often does, because he was speaking, and he flew into Honolulu. And flying in with the time change, he couldn't sleep. And so in the dead of night, he couldn't sleep. He went out to an all-night diner. And while he was out in Honolulu at this all-night diner, sitting there by himself, having a piece of pie, he overheard a group of prostitutes talking. And one of them mentioned that the next day was her 39th birthday. To which another replied scornfully, what do you want, a birthday party? And the one whose birthday was the next day, Tony describes, retreated back into her defensive shell, that place of self-hatred and apathy, and responded, well, I've never had one my whole life. Why should I expect one now? Tony had what I would like to call the language we've been using, a kairos moment. God spoke 
audibly to Tony in that moment. What did God tell Tony to do? God told Tony to throw this woman a birthday party. And what did Tony do about what God said? He conspired with the owner of the diner to do just that the next night. Cake, decorations, shouts, cries, happy birthday from the mouths of her small group of friends and this stranger greeted this prostitute and left her stunned. She was shocked that anyone would go to this much trouble just for her. She asked if she could take the cake home and then left with her prize. When she left, Tony writes that he offered to pray and then prayed for her salvation. He prayed for her life to change. He prayed for God to be good to her. And in the midst of that prayer, it startled the owner of the diner who asked antagonistically, you never told me you were a preacher? What kind of church do you belong to? And Tony responded, he belonged to a church that threw birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Amen. Beloved, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus towards the house of Levi as an ordinary home becomes an entrance into the kingdom of God. Let us cross through that doorway, no longer framed by stereotypes, but opened up to the promise of a new creation where there is neither Jew or Greek, neither slave or free, neither tax collector or sinner. The gospel of salvation always leads to a feast. The gift of forgiveness always centers around a table, and it is a table that is open to all, not just full members, but whomever the Lord gathers. In the kingdom of God, there are always more chairs. There is always more room. There is never a guest list. As the ring of discipleship, as we go through Mark, gets bigger rather than smaller, beloved, let us take care to notice those who are standing on the outside rather than the inside of the circle. It might be us. But if we find ourselves on the inside and notice those on the outside, let us go to them and bring the table of Christ with us. Let us invite them to break his bread with us, to drink his wine with us. Let us celebrate and share with everyone the gift of forgiveness and the power of resurrection, of life over death, the power that can bring back the dead, the power that can turn tax collectors and sinners like us into disciples. Let us pay special attention in these few verses in Mark to the odd yet profound aside that Mark gives us during this scene. You might have missed it, where Mark says in the midst of what's going on, there were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. He's not talking about fishermen. Beloved, may our church be a setting where people who need doctors can come to find healing. May Christ's body, his bride, be a community of invitation to those in need of forgiveness. And let us never forget that where we think we stand with Jesus is ultimately revealed by whom we are willing to stand with, by the company we keep. May it be said of us, there were many of this kind in their church. Amen? Amen. Amen.